If you would take out the Word of God and turn to 1 Samuel, we're in chapter 20 as we work our way through this fascinating book of the Bible. Each week we take a section of this book and we work our way through it. It takes as long as it takes to get through it. Um, And I would just say to you, uh, maybe you're not used to 45-minute sermons. That's okay. Uh, We're okay with that. Uh, We want you here, and we want you to hear the Word of God. Maybe you need to take a break about 20 minutes through and come back to it later this week. It'll be online. You can do that. Maybe you need to take a nap halfway through. I don't know what you need to do. Uh, But what we do believe is that this is the Word of God. And one of the things I believe as the shepherd of this church And my responsibility is to shepherd with the Word of God. It's not to stand at this time and sort of give a little pep talk and help you through your week. It's to teach you the Bible, to actually teach you the Bible. Uh, Last week, there were some very graphic scenes in the text we were looking at, uh, circumcising Philistines with your sword, I'll put it that way. Um, And people were saying, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Uh, And uh, it's exciting to teach the Bible and to show you, yeah, those things are in the Bible, but it also often breaks my heart because we are so ignorant of the scriptures, of our own doing. We glut ourselves with so much, uh, and we live in a culture where serious biblical teaching, uh, it's like a famine, it's like a drought. This week, I apologized to somebody for preaching a long sermon, and they said, do not apologize. I am starved to death, and I need it each week. And so that's who we're going to be, and that's what we're going to do here. Uh, and we'll, we'll help you through that and maybe stop and pray for yourself halfway through, uh, but get ready for about 45 minutes of the Bible. That's what we're about to do. Uh, And I'm going to read just a few verses here in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 41 and 42, and then we will work our way through this chapter. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word and stand with anticipation. This is the word of Christ. Jesus gives us his word to explain to us, to show us, to display for us what kind of king he is. And today, we see he is the king we need. He is a friend to sinners. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another. David, weeping The most. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between us and between my offspring and your offspring. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Oh God, I pray today that you would teach us according to your word by the power of your spirit, even as Jake just described our hearts. And our hearts are so wicked, and we want things that, that you don't want for us, that are not good for us. And we think we can satisfy the longings of our heart with something other than Jesus. And yet you have given us your Son in flesh and blood on a cross, raised from the dead, seated at your right hand. And you have given us everything in him 
God calls us to repent of believing anything else would satisfy us but Jesus. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There seems to be a lot of homosexuals here. That was an embarrassing statement that I made as my wife and I drove through the streets of Addis Ababa, which is the capital of Ethiopia. And I said it because everywhere we went, I'm talking about everywhere, stores, driving down the road, everywhere, men were holding hands. If you grow up in Lewisburg, Tennessee, 19 years of your life and you don't get out much and you haven't uh, been around the world and, and you're all of a sudden in a place and you just see men walking down the street holding hands, uh, embarrassingly, as I said, that is just what I assumed, that these were men who were homosexuals. And I made that statement loud enough that our driver started laughing. And he, start, he started laughing, and he said, yeah, a lot of Americans think that, and it's not true. These, these men are just friends, and this is what friends do in our culture. Men who are friends, they hold hands when they walk down the street. And for me, that, that was odd. That was a stark contrast to the sort of friendships I know. I, I run with Kyle Wells each week. Uh, we run together one day a week, and, and never once will you see us running up and down this road <laughs> holding hands. <laughs> Yesterday, I went to a Tennessee ball game with, with Chad. Good to get in here, Chad. Glad you're here on time. Uh, he was taking up the offering. He's taking up the offering. And Jason's story, and never once did we hold hands as we watched the game or walk to and from the stadium. I, I, did, I would never do that. But in some cultures, the sort of stale handshake that we offer one another, the sort of fake plastic smile, how are you doing good, just sort of walking away, slap on the shoulder, that would be offensive to them. That would be offensive. You would be saying, I don't like you if you held people in uh, arm's length that way. And, and this was a display of genuine, real friendship among men that, that sort of makes some of us here in our culture feel uncomfortable. And, and when we even look at the Bible, it makes us feel uncomfortable when we look at friendships like David and Jonathan and even the verse I just read. Uh, our idea of friendship among men, that makes us feel really uncomfortable that they kissed one another and they wept together. And, and, and it's also a reason why some men in our culture have such a problem with the church. Because think about this. When we talk about being a Christian, we are calling men to follow a man. And much of what we talk about is to have affection toward a man, to love Jesus, to delight in Jesus, to, to, to even be, it's a strange thing for a man, if you've ever thought about this, to say, I am a part of the bride of Christ. And then to add to that with so much uh, conversation and dialogue and even the worship songs that we use in the context of the church, which is this sort of Jesus is my boyfriend uh, language and choruses that we sing over and over as if we are singing a love song to another man. 
There, there is a popular Christian song that has the phrase, I just want to lay my head on your chest. And that is a worship song. Now, it's really hard for me to sing that worship song. But do you realize that that comes right out of the Bible? It's a picture of John at the Lord's Supper, and he lays his head on the chest of Jesus. And some of us here today, men, are really uncomfortable at this moment. And it's why many have even interpreted the chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, they've actually said that David and Jonathan were homosexuals. Now, that's not true, and that's not right. But the word used of them is soulmates, that their friendship embodied what it means to be soulmates. That's how close their friendship was. And so it's important as we talk about these things to ask why were they so close? What formed their friendship? And first of all, we have to understand that David and Jonathan's friendship was formed in battle. They were, it was formed in war. They had a common enemy, and it was the Philistines. C.S. Lewis once said, friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. And that's exactly what we've seen with David and Jonathan. Jonathan is this bloodthirsty warrior who fights in the name of the Lord. And he is marching against the Philistines. He's actually the only one out doing battle with the Philistines. Saul is back at his castle. He is, he is in his fortress. He is serving himself. And Jonathan, with his armor bearer, is charging against the Philistines. And he is killing the Philistines. And now the the shepherd boy David comes on the scene and Jonathan is now standing with Saul and David and David has in his hand the giant's head and he is telling this great story yeah I went down to the creek and I got these stones like tennis balls and I, I went out and I told that giant how I was going to cut his head off he called me a mangy dog. Can you believe that? And I told him, you've got your spear and you've got all of this, but I come in the name of the Lord and I slung one of those rocks and it dented his skull. And then I went and I stood over him and I pulled out his sword and I began to saw his neck off. And here it is. And Jonathan said, you're the man. <laughs> yes. That's great. I want to be your friend. Because we have a common enemy. And we are brothers in war. And that's what formed their friendship. It wasn't some generic, plastic, artificial, just relationship or acquaintance. They were forged together in war. And notice verse 1 of chapter 20. Then David fled to Naoth of Ramah. These are villages in Ramah, Saul's hometown, uh, Jonathan's hometown here. And, and he flees to this place because he is running from Saul who is trying to kill him. Saul understands that David is the anointed king and he is trying to kill him. And so David is running for his life having, having the spear of Saul come at his head multiple times. And David is fleeing, and he finally finds Jonathan. 
And he says, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father? Do you understand your father seeks my life? And Jonathan says, verse 2, far from it, you shall not die. My, my father does nothing without telling me. And why would my father hide this from me? It's not true. David, my dad told me he would never kill you. He swore in the name of the Lord. But Saul's a liar. Saul's a liar. Because it's true. Verse 3. David vowed again. Now that word vow is so important through this whole chapter. It's used over and over. He says, your father knows that we, I found favor in your eyes. We are friends. And he knows it. And he's actually jealous of it. And he thinks that if he tells you, if he tells you what's going on, Jonathan, that, that, that he, he's never going to tell you because he knows what good friends we are. But he says, as verse 3 continues... He would be grieved, but truly as the Lord lives and your soul lives. Now, that, those phrases are so important throughout. There's vows. There's the Lord lives. There's we live. He, he says there is but a step of death between me uh, and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do. I am loyal to you. I am your friend. Verse 5. And David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is coming, and there is a new moon. And this was a festival in Israel. And, and there would have been sacrifices on behalf of every family. And now remember, David is a part of Saul's family. So he is supposed to attend this festival with Saul and his family. And he says, I am supposed to sit at the king's table. But he continues, verse 5, But let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. Verse 6, And if your father misses me at all, as you sit around the table, he'll notice I'm not there with my family. Where's David? You mean the guy you've tried to kill five times already? He decided he wouldn't be here tonight. Then David said earnestly, he, 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 Jonathan, you are to say, David asked earnestly for, for permission to leave, to notice, to go to Bethlehem, his city, to offer sacrifices for this yearly sacrifice. Therefore, all of his family, and then verse 7, and if Saul says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know the harm he determined me. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant. Again, vows, covenants, as the Lord lives. This is very important. But if there is guilt in, in me, you kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? He says, I've got a plan. As we sit around to eat at the festival, Saul's going to look over and he's going to say, where is David? And if he's okay with me not being there, that means he's sort of thrown his little temper tantrums and he's beyond them. But if he gets irritated, you're going to see his response and you're going to see his attitude toward me in the way that he responds in my absence. And remember what Saul wants to do. He wants to keep David close. He wants him around so he can control him, so he can keep his throne safe. And throughout what we're seeing here is Jonathan is having to make a decision. Is he going to to side with the rightness of the kingdom or the sin of Saul. 
And it comes down to a point where he has to decide between his own father and his friend. And what Jonathan is having to do at this point is he is having to make a decision. Am I going to suffer for righteousness sake, for the one who is right? And that's what friendship with Jesus looks like. It is a constant decision in your life. Will I suffer? Will I side with the righteousness of the kingdom? Or will I betray my friend who is Jesus? That's exactly the decision Jonathan is making here. And it's a decision you're going to make this week over and over and over again. You're going to have to make the decision. Is Jesus right about this? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, you have to make a decision about the one you say you follow, the one you say is your friend. Is he right? Is he right? Or does that embarrass me that he says that? You're going to have to make a decision. Is Jesus right or is the world right? When the world calls me to just to serve myself, to get what I want, you're going to have conflict with others this week. And there are going to be people whispering in your ear, no, you need to let them have it. You need to get what is yours. You need to protect yourself. And you're going to have to make a decision. Are they right or is Jesus right? When Jesus says, be kind. Be merciful. Bless your enemies. Is Jesus right or are they right? You're going to be forced with decisions this week. Sin that maybe nobody else will know about. Your heart is going to call you to do things that maybe nobody else will ever find out. And it's just going to be you and Jesus. And you're going to have to ask the question, Jesus, are you right or am I right? Will this fulfill all my hopes and dreams? Or will faithfulness and righteousness fulfill my heart's desires? That is the decision Jonathan is making here. And as they begin to sort this out, Jonathan says, hold on, bro. Let's step outside. Let's go out to the field so nobody else can hear what's going on here. And then in verse 12, Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel be our witness. And again, this is so vitally important. You miss, the, you, you miss the point of the chapter if you don't see this over and over. They are calling God as witness. They're saying as sure as God lives, as sure as we are alive, our commitment to one another is based on our lives and the existence and faithfulness of God. And he says, the Lord God of Israel will be our witness. When I've tested my father out, when I try to figure out, is he, is he well disposed to you or is he angry with you? The, the, the Lord will be my witness that I'm going to tell you what's going on. And then verse 13, but it should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, Jonathan says of himself, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go safely again. My life is at stake in our friendship. The Lord is witness. If I'm not a good friend to you, if I'm not faithful and loyal to you, then then God kill me. Verse 13 continues, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. May the Lord's power and authority in the kingdom be with you and rest upon you, even as it is rested on Saul and it's been taken away from him. And then verse 14, and if I am still alive, this is an important phrase here, Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Now, this word steadfast love, it is the word hesed. And and it is really hard to translate because every good word 
about God's faithfulness is sort of wrapped up in that word. Every concept of love, faithfulness, grace, mercy is wrapped up into that word hesed. And what Jonathan is saying, I need all of you committed to me. And I am all of me committed to you. And do not cut me off from, from this covenant love. We have made a covenant and we have staked our lives on one another. And, and do not cut me off from this commitment. Do not betray me. Verse 15. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, he's saying you are king and God is going to punish all of your enemies. And my only hope is your covenant commitment to me. Not just some you know, weak, pathetic, lightweight friendship. Hey man, think about me when the time comes. No, you have said, David, that if you do not protect me, God take your life. And I've said to you, David, if I'm not loyal to you, God take my life. We've made a covenant. And that what's, that's what seals us together. And it's what seals me to your kingdom. Verse 16, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Now notice what he's saying there. Who is David's enemy? Saul and his own house. And in verse 17, Jonathan made David swear again by his love. And he said, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Notice this bond, this covenant commitment to one another. In verse 18, he said, your seat will be empty tomorrow when the festival comes. And, and, and verse 19, on the third day, go quickly down to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was at hand and remain beside the stone. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. And if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on the side of you. Take them. Then you are to come. Again, notice, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you there, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond, then you go, the Lord has sent you. And as for that matter of which you have spoken, notice, behold, the Lord is between us forever. I wanted to read all that because I wanted you to see how intense that friendship is. How intense that commitment is to one another. That they have made a covenant together. We saw it last chapter where they get together and they slice animals in half. And they spill out blood. And what they have said to one another is if we betray one another, so to us what has happened to these animals we deserve to be split in half. We deserve to have our life taken. If I betray you, David, may God strike me dead. And that's not just a, a phrase. I deserve to die if I'm not loyal to you. I, that's what I deserve. I've sealed my love to you in blood. And it's a picture of what covenant love is. It, we live in a culture where contracts are so easily broken. And there's always a way out. Irreconcilable differences. We can figure it out if we get a lawyer good enough. We can get our way out of this if we have enough money. And what Jonathan and David are saying is, we can't get out of our friendship. It's bound together in hesed. I have made a commitment to you, and now, 
Who I am is wrapped up in that commitment, which is exactly what God does to us. He tells us what he's going to do. And then he says, if I don't do it, I'm a liar. And you have no business trusting me. This is what he told Moses. When Moses said, who are you? And he said, I am who I am. Meaning, I do everything that I say I'll do. And I'm going to deliver my people from Egypt. And if I don't do it, I'm a liar. And you should never trust me again. I'm unfaithful. But I am the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And I always do what I say. And here, their friendship is bound together. And we see a picture for Israel of God saying, I'm going to do everything that I said I'll do. But now I'm going to do it through my king. And if you bind yourself to him in love, you will experience all of my covenant commitment. That's why the gospel today, it's God's hesed to us. It is all of God's character bound up in good news. It is all of God's love, faithfulness, righteousness, mercy. We could, just, we could spend all day just packing words in to, to, to hesed. Grace, mercy, faithfulness, compassion. It's all of that wrapped up there to us in a person. You know what God has said to you today? I am vowing myself to you. As sure as I exist, everything that I say, everything that I tell you I'm going to do has taken on flesh and blood in a person. And Jesus stands before us as a friend And he says, as sure as I live, I'm committed to you. And you know what he does to make sure we understand it? He lives a perfect life for us. He says, you can't fulfill your commitment to me, so I'm going to fulfill it for you. I want you to know how committed I am to you. I'm going to live the life necessary for covenant commitment for you. And then Jesus can stand before us today and say, as sure as I have died, I'm committed to you. You can't doubt my commitment to you. It is sealed in blood, just like the blood of the animal before David and Jonathan is spilled out there. Jesus has has said to us today, I've already been cut off. I've already been torn to pieces. So nothing is going to tear me from my commitment to you. And, And Jesus can say to you today, as sure as I've been raised from the dead. So when he says to you, as sure as I live, you look at a former corpse who can't die again. So his commitment to you is eternal. It cannot be ripped away. He's already been ripped from God's grace for us, God's presence for us on the cross. And this is why when we look at this, friendships in the church should be the deepest friendships we experience. Because we are bound together not just with Jesus, but to one another. Jesus has not today just bound himself to you as an individual. He has bound himself to all of us. And he says, I'm committed to all of you. And you display my friendship to you by being friends to one another. So often we we really do think about friendships in light of our hobbies. When you think about your life and you think about your closest friends, so often... They are associated with your hobbies. Yeah, I used to bowl with that guy. Yeah, I used to to teach or or, uh, coach with that person. 
Oh, oh yeah, we used to spend every day, uh, you know, practicing for the musicals. We used, to, we used to always go to the band competitions together. And you think about your closest friends, and you think about people who you have those hobbies with. And yet, in the church, we have said to one another, you're not a hobby. This isn't just a period or season in my life where I, I just need some people around me. No, we've said this is an eternal bond, and it is wrapped up in the blood of Christ. And because I am tied to Jesus in a covenant commitment, if I walk away from you, I'm walking away from Jesus. That's the covenant we have made to one another. When we say, I'm going to be a part of this thing called the church, it is a covenant commitment of covenant friends. And we say to one another, as sure as Jesus died for me, I will die for you. I will endure your preferences for your good, even when I want it my way. I can't walk away from you. We are tied together in Hesed. And Jesus has died for our sins, so there's no sin that's going to keep, there's no sin that's going to come between us. As sure as Jesus was raised from the dead, whatever problems we have, as sure as the gospel is true, we're going to work them out. Jesus overcame the grave. We can overcome differences in how the coffee tastes on Sunday morning. We can. We, we can overcome differences in music. We can come overcome differences in parenting. We can overcome differences in the way that we order our finances. We can overcome, oh, you didn't talk to me today. Why didn't you talk to me? Are you mad at me? We can overcome all of that. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And we are bound to him. So we are bound to one another in an eternal covenant commitment. And so as sure as Jesus is standing in heaven right now, I'm committed to you. And to walk away from you is to say something about the gospel. It's to say the gospel was only true for a short time in our friendship. It was true until you made me mad. It was true until you hurt my feelings. It's to say something about Jesus' covenant commitment to us. But then we see commitment, friendship with Jesus also involves suffering. David eventually goes out into the field. Saul, the first day, has no thought. Where's David? He's probably unclean. He's killed a lot of people lately. He's probably been to some funerals. He's probably been out hunting. That's why he's not here. But the paranoia sets in with Saul. And he looks over again the next day at his empty seat. And, and we see a description there in those verses of, Paul, of Saul with his back to the wall. He's looking for David. Then verse 27, on the second day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said... To Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the mill either yesterday or today? This is two days he hasn't been here, and I've been looking for him. I, I, he's supposed to be here. And Jonathan said, probably because you're trying to kill him over and over again. Verse 28, Jonathan said, answered Saul, David earnestly asked to go to Bethlehem. And he said to me, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city just like everybody else does. Their days of atonement, burn offerings, and he's there with his family, spending time with them. And he said, and my brother has commanded me. Notice how he describes David. My brother has commanded me to be there. So now I have found favor in your eyes. And let me get away to see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. In verse 30, 
Notice Saul's anger was kindled. Jonathan just stoked it. And notice what he says here. He said to Jonathan, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do you, I, I know, not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. Now, that's a PG version for what he said to him. Because you would turn your TV off when those words started spewing out. What he says to Jonathan was, I wish I had never met your mother. I wish you didn't exist, you son of a perverse woman. And he says, do you not understand, as long as David lives, you will never have the throne. And and then we get down to verse 32, and Jonathan said to Saul, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Notice he's pleading here David's innocence. But notice what happens. David hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Notice what Jonathan's doing here. Even with the spear, he's identifying with David's suffering. He says, that is the man I have made a commitment to, even in the face of my angry father. And now the same thing that has happened to David is happening to Jonathan. There is anger. And then the spear comes across the room. And we're to be reminded, yeah, that's happened about five times to David now. And and Jonathan has so bound himself to David that the same exact things are happening to him. He is identified with David's sufferings. He's insulted. There is an attack on his life because of David. And it's the same thing Jesus says to us. If Jesus said these words, if they hate me, they will hate you. Jesus promises us that. That we live in a world that is so anti-Jesus that when we align with Jesus, at some point people are going to hate us. And we see that with Jonathan. He's so aligned with David's kingdom, coming kingdom, and Saul does not get it. Do you know you are forfeiting your right to the kingdom? This makes no sense to me. He has come to take our throne away. He is our rival. Spear comes across the room. And Jonathan says, yes, this is true. He hates David, and now he hates me. And he goes out to identify with David. It's the same thing Jesus calls us to do when he says, take up your cross and follow me. He's not saying, you know, this week, you may have a flat tire, and you need to take up your cross and follow me. Don't throw the lug knots across the road out of anger. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying this week, Someone at McDonald's may put onions on your cheeseburger. Take up your cross and follow me. Don't yell at them. Don't call them an idiot. Thinking they can't hear you. But they really can because the window is still open. May have happen to some people here. That's not what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It's not at all. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem And I'm going to be hung on two pieces of wood. And I'm going to die at the hands of the rulers. 
and I'm going to be mounted outside the city on a trash heap. And you know what I want you to do? I want you to take up your cross and follow me. I want you to so identify with me that the same kind of suffering is mimicked in your life. Now, that's really hard for us to understand. Every time we talk about this in a sermon, we have BFG questions and, you know, they're put in front of us. How do your sufferings look like Jesus' sufferings? And so often in our small groups, it's really hard for us to answer that question. We live in a culture where there are uh, Christian values that we hold. There are morale, there's morality that we hold to. And we do live in a culture where there's tension there. And if we want to live out the gospel, we got to believe and we got to stand for some, certain things. And, and there's tension there. And we should suffer for those things. But the question today is, do you ever suffer because you're a Christian who lives like Jesus. How often do you suffer because you share the gospel? Do you suffer because you share the gospel? Does that really happen in our life? And the question for us, and it should hit us all in the gut, is am I really friends with Jesus? Or is Jesus just an acquaintance? You know, we all have those weird friends, crazy, loony friends who do things. And our relationship with them at times is embarrassing. Oh, you're friends with that person? He's kind of weird. Yeah, he's weird. He's crazy. He says all that. You got to take that up with him. Is that the way you treat Jesus? Yeah, Jesus has said some really crazy things in the Bible, y'all. You have to take that up with him. Or do you say, no, this is all true? He's Lord of lords. He's King of kings. He is my only hope, and he is your only hope. And if you do not believe in him, it's not that you just won't have happiness here and now. You'll go to hell. And I'm going to follow him if it means suffering for me, if it means losing this friendship, if it means losing this job, if it means losing my money. I'm going to say, Jesus, my king, is my friend. And I'm not embarrassed of him. I'm not. He's Lord of lords, king of kings. He's my friend. He's my best friend. He's my greatest friend. At the end of the day, I may lose all my other friends. But Jesus is the only friend who will still be there. Do you suffer in that way for Jesus? All I want you to do this week is think about it. Because there are opportunities there. There are hard places you could go to and suffer for Jesus. There really are. There are places you could lose your life for going and telling people about the gospel. Arrested. Kicked out of countries. No missionary friends right now, that's happening to them. Because they love Jesus. There are awkward conversations you could have this week. For the, there really are. Like we, let's, don't just, let's just don't act like those things don't exist. Let's don't come in here and feel good about this and just go away and say, oh, it'll be all right. No, there are really things you could do this week. There are people you could invite to lunch and you could sit down and say to them, you need Jesus. I love you. And you need Jesus. There's hard conversations, difficult people. It's there. And notice, it is what we experience when we experience the friendship of Jesus. 
It means Jesus is our friend when we suffer the same way he does. Well, eventually, Jonathan and David, they go out into the field. The arrows are shot. There's the indication Saul is angry, so David's got to get away. And Jonathan goes out to meet him. And in the verses we read earlier, David gets up. Jonathan's armor bearer leaves. And notice verse 41. He, he bows on his face three times in his presence. There is the humility. This is my friend who has saved my life. And they kissed and they wept one another. But notice this, David's weeping was the most. The king. Now, think about this. David is coming into the kingdom. It's all going to be his. And yet he's weeping the most for Jonathan, his friend, who is losing it all. Verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. We have sworn in the name of the Lord. As sure as God lives, we are bound together. The Lord, again, it's just the emphasis throughout this whole chapter. The Lord is between us. The Lord is between us. My offspring and your offspring. We're not, we're not just bound by blood. We are bound in a covenant commitment to one another that cannot be separated. That cannot be annulled. We are committed to one another no matter what. And what we see here is a picture of both of them going off into exile. David goes into exile in the wilderness in some sense. And Jonathan goes into exile into his father's kingdom. And it's a picture of where we live. We, we are part of a coming kingdom. And it is our kingdom. And yet we live exiled right now. We live exiled under the rule of sin, Satan, and death. They live under the rule of Saul at this time. But there's a better kingdom coming. And it is in the exile where their friendship is formed. That is where we become better friends. Under the rule of sin, Satan, and death, knowing there is something better coming. And we are bound together by that kingdom. Something bigger and more glorious than anything we'll experience here and now. And it's where deep friendship with Jesus is formed. Think about your deepest friends in life. There are those friends that right now, if they called you, the diagnosis is cancer. They called you right now. This is horrible. He's not going to make it. And that feeling in your gut when they say those words to you, and you wish with all of your might that you could take it from them. You wish that you could be there in their place enduring that suffering for them. Those are your closest friendships. Those people you want to do that for. Or those people who've done that for you. They've shown up and they said, I don't know what else to do. I wish this were happening to me. Do you have friends like that? If you're a Christian, you do. Because there is one who has said in this exile, not just I wish I could endure it for you, who has endured it for you. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Understand this today. Jesus doesn't just wish he could endure your sin and suffering for you. He's endured it in ways you can't even imagine. He's endured your sin in a way that you will never endure it. He has suffered for you in a way you'll never suffer because he is perfect and he is righteous. And he knows, 
He knows what it means to have a world that is unnatural, cursed with death. And this is why he stood at the tomb of Lazarus. And it's not just he shed some little tears. No, he stands at a first century funeral and he stomps his foot in anger. It's a picture of a horse who's angry, who's raging. Why? He sees death and he says, this ain't the way it's supposed to be. This is unnatural. And his heart breaks that you have to endure death. And his heart breaks that you have to endure relationships that don't work out. And his heart breaks that, that, things, that, that, that relationships leave you in such uh, misery and anguish. And you choose things for yourself that ruin your life. It breaks his heart. But he's not just a friend who slaps you on the back and says, hey, it'll get better. No, he steps in the way and he says, bring it all on me. The infinite suffering that you deserve, bring it all on me. All of God's displeasure, all of the curse, bring it all upon me. And on the cross, he is separated from the goodness of God and torched with the wrath of God. Eternal wrath, because that's what you deserve. He has endured your suffering in a way you'll never do it. And that's why he's the greatest friend you could ever have. And we are to model that with one another in the context of the church. As we are alienated and disappointed, we're to get together and say, I'm going to be your friend because Jesus is my friend. In the same way, some of us, we, we, we experience sports. We practice long hours, two-a-days, running suicides in the gym, spending weeks and months together. And you win the game? And even as men, you do things that you would not do any other time with a man. You embrace one another, you're kissing each other on the forehead, smacking each other on the backside. Why? This is my brother. And we went through the exile, and now we know victory. For some of you who've been to war, it doesn't even compare to that. You've had bullets flying out at your head. You have heard echoes of bombs in the distance. And you know tomorrow you may get up with your buddies and lose your life. Some of you have held friends in your arm as they bled to death on the battlefield. And when you see your friends, it's not just this, hey, buddy, how are you doing? No, there's an embrace. You embrace one another because you're friends. And the same thing should be going on in the church over and over again. When you have slept on that waiting room floor with one another because you don't want to leave your friend. Because you don't know what's coming for your friend. When you've shown up in the middle of the night at their house and you don't even know what to say. But, but I'm going I'm to do whatever I can to help you put the pieces of this marriage back together. But when, you, when you've been friends in that way, it just makes sense that you would embrace. It makes sense that you would hug. It makes sense that you would enjoy being around one another. When you've just sat together in depression. I don't know how to get out of this, but I'm just going to be here with you. And there's going to be people that see you. And they're going to see your friendship here on a Sunday morning. They're going to see your friendship at campus, they're going to see your friendship out in the world. Maybe you, maybe you hug just a little tighter because that's your friend in the gospel. And they're going to say, 
How do y'all know each other? Oh, we're just friends. Let's pray.